0: Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good afternoon, everyone, that's um, on the East Coast. This is uh, Kennard speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Today is uh, March 20th, 2010. Well, in the United States, they're focusing on the health care plan and so forth, and I'm still studying that to see if there's any benefit at all to the overall population of America. I encourage you to do the same. If they do pass this health care bill, it will definitely signify a significant change in the way health care is administered. So I highly recommend and encourage you to investigate that. So, this Bible study is about the significance of the Temple of God. I've studied this subject uh, in great detail, especially since uh, 2004. And the Temple of God is very important and it is very significant. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 2 to begin this Bible study. And my goal today is to really emphasize and underscore The very important role that the temple of God or the house of God, as it's stated many times in the Old Testament, how it plays a significant role in past history, current history, and future history. Okay, Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1 in the King James Version, it states, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah, which is... Another name for Jews. And Jerusalem, and I think most people know where Jerusalem at is the center of the world, basically. It's in Palestine. Verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days. The word last days in its original Hebrew meaning means the days of the coming of the Messiah or the days leading to the coming of the Messiah. And it says that the mountain of the Lord's house, and when you understand where that mountain is located today, it's Mount Moriah, and that is where Isaac was almost sacrificed by Abraham, and God had to come and tell him to stop doing that, to stop sacrificing him, and of course he substituted a lamb for him to, to sacrifice. So, that is where the Temple Mount is located today. It says that the mountain of the Lord's house of Mount Moriah shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Now, I want you to understand what this is saying here. It's saying that, and I'm going to prove this through other scriptures today, that the whole world will be drawn to the Temple. So, right there, it should help you to understand the significance of the temple. Verse 3, And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God. The mountain of the Lord is called also the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways. So we will learn God's ways. And God's ways is his commandments. And we will walk in his paths. So not only are we to be taught of his ways, but we are also to walk in his ways. Now I want you to notice something, because I think people read these scriptures and they don't understand the significance of what it's saying here. It's saying that many people in many nations, not just the Jews, will come to the temple of God and desire for God to teach them his ways and to walk in his paths. So, again, for Jews that believe that there's one set of laws for the Gentiles and one set of laws for the Jews, that's totally false here in light of what the Scripture is saying here. It's saying that all the nations, many nations, will desire to be taught of God's ways, which, common sense to tell you, is His commandments, and we will walk in His paths. So, let me... Hold your place here, and let's turn to First John. Because I to have to quote this scripture many times, because many people think they know God, but if you don't keep His commandments, God says you don't know Him. First John, First John, chapter two, verse three. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Verse four: He that says, "I know Him," and keep not His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And the truth defined, as far as the Bible is concerned, is the Torah or the law of God. In Psalm 119, verse 142. Verse 5. But whosoever keep of his word, in him verily is the love of God. And what's the love of God is defined in Romans chapter 13. Let's turn there. Romans 13. Many people don't know that the Bible does define what love is. We have various books written about what love is when it's very simply defined in the Bible. Romans 13, verse 10. says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, colon, continue a the thought. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It's the doing of the law. You, you, that's, what, what's, that's what love is. Love is associated with the law of God. So, turning back to First John, chapter 2 starting verse 6, he that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Okay? And of course, that's talking about the representative of God, which is Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 2, which is one of the most significant verses or passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. So, it states here: "Colon contained that for out of Zion shall go forth the law of the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." Verse four: "And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke or correct many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, to be used for agriculture. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore." So, because of this influx of the knowledge of God going out into all the world, people will not have any desire to fight among each other. And there will be peace. Because let's understand something. Let's turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Starting in verse 165, it says, Great peace have they which love thy law, That's the reason why it's going to be peace on the earth, because the people are going to be desiring to want to keep the law and to walk in those laws' paths, which is the character of God, as I've showed you. Psalm 119, verse 165, Great peace have they which love thy law. Colon, continue the thought, and nothing shall offend them or cause them to fall. Verse 166, Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. So when you hope for salvation, which is immortality, which none of us have yet, if you hope for that, then you do the commandments. That's how you hope for salvation. Don't let anyone deceive you saying that we can't, we um, we don't have to keep the commandments anymore because the law of God was nailed to the cross. That's a lie. Again, I have to tell you to listen to my six-hour Bible study that explains that. Uh, the first part of that Bible study is, is the law of Moses nailed to the cross? Many people don't understand that the law of Moses is the law of God. And I explain that in this Bible study. So the first part is, is the law of Moses nailed it the cross. The second is, what is sin? The third is, one law for all of mankind. I encourage you to listen to that. And please, have other people who really want to know the truth about the Bible, because that's what I do. I preach the truth. I know many people state the same thing, but you can prove it by just looking up these scriptures yourself and seeing that I'm preaching the truth of God out of the Bible. Okay, so let's turn back to well actually Isaiah chapter two already, but now Isaiah chapter fifty six. Isaiah chapter fifty six is another significant scripture in the Bible. Isaiah fifty six, starting in verse one. It says thus says the Lord, keep You judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. And what's God's righteousness? Again, Psalm 119, verse 172. Righteousness is all the commandments of God. Verse 2. Blessed is the man that does this. Now, it's saying blessed is the man. It's not saying blessed is the Jew only, but blessed is the man. The law is for all of mankind. Let's hold Hold your place here and turn to Ecclesiasticus. Not, not Ecclesiasticus, but Ecclesiasticus. Ecclesiasticus is a Apocrypha writings, anyway, which complement the Bible in a lot of cases. But anyway, Ecclesiasticus, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> Ecclesiastes. Verse, I mean, chapter 12, Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, and starting in verse 13. It says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, colon, continue the thought. Fear God and keep his commandments. So when you fear God, you keep his commandments. If you don't fear God, you don't keep his commandments. Fearing God has something to do with keeping his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For this is the whole of man, or the whole duty of man, which is a good addition there. verse, verse, Verse 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So that's the whole duty of man, not just the whole duty of the Jews, but the whole duty of mankind, is to keep the commandments of God. And when you keep the commandments of God, you fear and respect God. You revere Him. When you don't keep those commandments, you don't revere Him. So let's understand that. Now, turning back to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 2. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold unto it, that keepeth the shabbat or sabbath from polluting it and keep up his hand from doing any evil now this verse proves that the sabbath is not just for the jews again because it's stating that man let's look this word up and i know it means mankind but i'm hoping it does but let me look it up to make sure isaiah chapter uh, two no oh, i'm sorry isaiah 56 Yes, it means uh, man, moral tool. And then the son of man, that word man means mankind. So it's referring to an individual man and also mankind. So that's what it's referring to. And then in verse 3, neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to the Lord. And how do you join yourself to the Lord? By starting to keep his commandments. Speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Thus says the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Shabbats and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Verse 5. Even unto them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Verse 6. Also the sons of the stranger that joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keepeth the Shabbat from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them uh, will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for just the Jews. No, for all people. That's the significance of the temple, ladies and gentlemen, is for all people, not just for the Jews. Zechariah chapter 2, Zechariah chapter 2. As one of the uh, former prophets. Zechariah chapter 2, or minor prophets, even though I don't consider any of the prophets minor. This is something so called religious experts made up. Zechariah chapter 2, starting in verse 10, it says Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, so the future of Jerusalem. For, lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, says the Lord. Verse 11, And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. So here we go again, joining to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, the Jews, his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Now this message is for the entire world. He says in verse 13, Be silent, O all flesh before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. And then Zechariah chapter 8, starting in verse 20. says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, It shall yet come to pass, that there shall come people, and the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily, enthusiastically, to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. And I will get to what that means, seeking the Lord, in a minute, because many people don't understand what it means to seek the Lord. Uh, Seek the Lord of hosts, I will also go. Verse 22, yes, many people and strong nations. What are the strong nations of today? The United States, right? Russia, China, all those nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Verse 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold of all the languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt. And when you understand the Hebraics of this, it's talking about the Zit Zit, which the Jews tie into a configuration of representing 613 commandments in the Torah, which of course is more than that in the entire Bible, but just in the Torah they calculate the 613 commandments. But the significance of this scripture is stating that a Gentile would take the hold of the skirt or the of him that is a Jew which is very significant again and they're taking a hold of that saying we will go with you for we have heard that God is with you so they're taking hold of the Zitzit which symbolizes the Ten Commandments, or not the Ten Commandments, but the 613 Commandments. And that's symbolic of the fact that they they desire to want to keep the law of God. Okay, and 2 Chronicles, chapter 11. 2 Chronicles, chapter 11. 2 Chronicles chapter 11, starting in verse 16, says, And after them, out of all the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jews and to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So, one of the ways that you seek God is by giving God a sacrifice. Now, the sacrifices. One of the major reasons why God created the sacrifices for us to do is because it encourages us to give to Him and to other people. Right now we can't do physical sacrifices because the temple is not built yet. However, in Hebrews chapter thirteen gives you the, the spiritual meaning and intent of the sacrifices in Hebrews chapter thirteen. Hebrews chapter thirteen, starting in verse fifteen. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, so prayer. And verse 16, but to do good and to communicate, communicate means in the original Greek that this is written in, to share, to share. Forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So the physical sacrifices pointed not only to the sacrifice, overall ultimate sacrifice of Yeshua Messiah, but it also points to us sharing and giving to God and to other people. So, we know that seeking God involves giving and sharing to God and to mankind. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, beginning in verse 4. And commanded Judah and the Jews to seek the Lord God of their fathers, and to do the law and the commandments. So also, seeking God involves keeping the law and the commandments of God, the Torah, the teachings of God, and and the commandments of God. Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse 6 to 7, says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. And what is this talking about seeking the Lord? Verse seven, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God and for he will abundantly pardon. And verse eight, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as your heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I, I do have a Bible study that I suggest you listen to on blog talk radio in the archives. It's called How to Think Like God, and it goes over this this, uh, this scripture and other scriptures that help you understand that thinking like God is simply just having a desire to want to obey his commandments, which is, involves his character. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. starting at verse 23. Now, this is a, a prophecy, and remember, Moses was a prophet. Uh, this is a prophecy that God gave Moses to, to educate the Israelites at this time, and but also he gave this uh, commandment to, to those who are living today. But Actually, let me go above this here. I want you to understand something. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6 says, keep therefore and do them. He's talking about the commandments. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who have God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him? And what nation is there great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I have set before you this day? So this tells you that God's law is above all other laws around the world. And it's the number one law for all nations, eventually, as I've been reading, will desire and want to keep as well. So anyway, Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 23, it says, Take heed unto yourselves that not you forget the covenant or the agreement of the Lord your God, which, you made, w- which he made with you, and make you a graven image of the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God has for- forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Verse 25. When you shall beget children... And children's children, and you shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image of the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereof you go over to Jordan to possess. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but you shall utterly be destroyed, and the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and that's already happened. The, not only the tribe of Judah, but all the rest of the tribes are scattered worldwide. And again, I encourage you to go to BritAm.org, wwwb look at Yer Davidi's website. It proves, without any doubt at all, if you believe the scriptures in secular history, that the United States, Canada, Britain, United Kingdom, countries in northwestern Europe, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. All are part of the ten tribes of Israel. Benjamin, which is another tribe, and Judah and Levi are all together as Judah. But Judah is not the only tribe of Israel. There's other tribes, and I know there's many theories about some of those individual tribes who call themselves Manasseh and so forth, and that may be true, but When you look at the prophecy in Genesis chapter 49 of what God prophesied that Joseph would become, Joseph, uh, Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh, Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, when you understand secular history and biblical history and the Bible, has to be referring to the United States and the British people when you understand the blessings that were bestowed on Ephraim and Manasseh. So anyway, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 26, uh, verse 27, And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, but the Lord shall lead you. Verse 28, And there you shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Verse 29, But if from hence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul, when thou art in tribulation, And all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, the days before the coming of the Messiah, the days we're living in now, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice. So, turning to the Lord has something to do with obeying him again, seeking him. Verse 31, For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant or agreement of thy fathers which he swore unto them. So, he's saying that many people, and Revelation chapter 7 reveals this, Uh, Many people will, through the tribulation or what I like to call the great spanking, people will repent. Many people will repent. And they will turn to the Lord. And turning to the Lord simply means that you desire to obey him. That's what it means, to truly repent. All right, let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Let's continue to understand the significance of the temple. 1 Kings chapter eight. First Kings chapter eight, starting in verse forty-one, says, "Moreover, concerning a stranger." Now, this is the Bible's definition of a stranger. Quite simple when you just use the Bible interpretation. That is not of thy people Israel. Okay, so a stranger is simply someone who is not of the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a stranger. But cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake. And so a stranger would be, in this context, the people of China, the people of um, Africa. Not you know excluding South Africa, people that are not of the, the twelve tribes of Israel or people that are not of that that aren't believers that don't believe that Yeshua is the messiah, so it can be either or those are people that are outside now we know the Jews whether they believe in Yeshua Messiah or not are not considered strangers because they're definitely a part of Israel but beside that. People that either are you know Buddhas or Muslims or you know outside of believing that that uh Yeshua is a Messiah or don't believe that the Bible is the Bible, those can also be considered strangers, so moreover, concerning a stranger a spiritually stranger that is not of thy people, Israel. So this is the biblical definition here. That does not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake. Verse 42, For they shall hear of thy great name, and of thy strong hand, and of thy stretched out arm, when he shall come and pray toward this house. Verse 43, Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name, to fear thee. Now, again, how do you fear God? Ecclesiastes says, Fearing God has something to do with keeping the commandments. Okay? As do thy people Israel. And this is not a proof that there's one law for everyone to keep. Uh, it says right here, that all the people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee, as do thy people Israel. So God wants the Gentiles, the strangers, to also fear God as the twelve tribes of Israel are supposed to be doing. Okay? And that they may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. That's a very powerful scripture. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. Now Solomon was commissioned of God to build the temple. And once that temple was completed, the whole world was drawn to that temple. And the whole world was somewhat at peace, somewhat, at that particular period of time. Uh, during the time of Solomon, uh, Solomon had reigned for 40 years. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, it says, And God said to him, because, remember that Solomon had asked God for wisdom. He didn't ask for all the carnal and and uh, the desirable things that most people would ask for. He asked for wisdom, and God was so surprised at that, or he was pleased with that, that he blessed him with the carnal things the physical things also. So 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, he says, And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment or to make right rulings. Verse 12, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding mind, that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any rise like unto thee. So he's saying any normal human being outside of Yeshua Messiah, there was never anyone as wise as Solomon. That's what he's saying here. Verse 13, And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. Verse 14, And if you will walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as I Father David did walk, and I will lengthen thy days. So Solomon was a powerhouse king, the most powerful king at that time. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, starting at verse 29, says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much in largeness of heart, even as the sand is on the seashore. So this Solomon was of genius level, probably perhaps past genius level. Verse 30 and Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East Country and all the wisdom of Egypt. And I tell you the Egyptians were wise. But God stated that Solomon's wisdom exceeded even their genius. Verse thirty one, for he was wiser than all men. Okay, that was a that's a plain scripture there. <laughs> for he was wiser than all men than Ethan the Ezraite and Heman and Charco and Dada and the sons of Mah, and his fame was in all nations round about. This is both physical and spiritual wisdom, verse 32. And he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that spring up out of the wall. He spake also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of all fishing. So he was so much of a um, uh, zoologist, I guess. He was an expert in all animals. Verse 34, And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth, which had heard of his wisdom. The reason why I'm quoting these scriptures is to help you to understand that this is going to happen again. Solomon was a type of Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 2, the whole world is going to come to Yeshua Messiah to get wisdom, both spiritual and physical wisdom, just like the world did to seek wisdom of Solomon physical, or spiritual, or physical wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 10. Because God is the originator of both wisdom, both types of wisdom, physical and spiritual. 1 Kings chapter 10. Or should I say spiritual first and then physical. 1 Kings chapter 10, starting in verse 23. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth sought to to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. So God is the one that puts wisdom into your heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices, horses and mules, a rate year by year. And they gave gifts to Solomon. And and they gave gifts to hear his wisdom. They're going to be doing the same to Yeshua Messiah in the future. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he had bestowed in the cities of chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And Solomon had horses bought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received linen yarn at a price. And a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150 and so for all the kings of Hittites and for the kings of Syria and they did bring them out by their means. So Solomon was filthy rich and God blessed him with both spiritual and physical wisdom. But this again, he's a type of Christ and you can see that when you read uh, Psalm 72. This is uh, a psalm for Solomon but it also is a type a psalm that really uh, pictures the future Messiah. And starting in verse 1, it says, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people, and little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people, and shall save the children of the needy, and shall break the, in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all dinner, generations. So we know that this can't be talking about Solomon here. In verse 5, they shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. So, you know, that in, that, that's that got to be talking about the Messiah there. Verse 6, he shall come down like rain upon the mountain grass and showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. That's referring to uh, Solomon, but also this is a future prophecy referring to the Messiah as well. Verse 11, yes, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him, for he shall deliver the needy which cryeth the poor also, and him that have no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. He shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. So be it, so be it, or amen, amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And that was a prayer that he had for his son, but that also alludes to the Messiah. And the temple is the center of all this, ladies and gentlemen. So I hope so far that you're starting to understand the significance of the temple. Now let's take a look at the temple of God in the New Testament, and let's also see whether or not it's just a physical structure only, or is it also alluding to the people of God? And you'll see that it is. It's a physical structure. It also is alluding to the people of God. Um Now, I just want to tell you where, it's only like eight places where the phrase Temple of God is located in the New Testament. We're going to turn to those scriptures, and then I'm going to quote something from David Stern's excellent commentary about the the temple and and the differences and so forth. All right, so let's go to the scriptures that um, refer to the Temple of God in in the remaining 51 minutes I have here. Matthew chapter 21 in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 12, it states And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables and the money chambers and the seats of them that sold. Those, in verse 13, and, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, I just quoted that scripture in Isaiah 56, verse 7, and Yeshua just quoted that scripture from that place. So, you know, what was going on here, if you look at the content of what was going on, people were buying and selling in the temple of God. Now, this can be also understood spiritually, too, because the temple of God also represents the people of God. And, again, many ministers are guilty of this, but... They associate the people of God, which is another type of temple, with buying and selling. And many ministers sell God's truth. And Isaiah chapter 55 tells tells anyone that God desires for... Let's turn there real quick. Isaiah chapter 55. 55. Verse 1, it says, Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money. Come ye, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, you know he must not be talking about uh, wine and milk when you look at the context here. Verse 2, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and, and your labor for that which is satisfied? Not hearken diligently unto me, and eat that which is good, and let your soul delight in its fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting Covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. The Jews, in their commentary, even state that this is uh, this is a metaphor referring to God's word as truth. Uh, And in Micah chapter three, Micah chapter three, verse eleven, it states here it says the heads therefore judge for reward, and the priests, which are the Torah teachers, therefore teach for hire. And the prophets, therefore, divine for money, yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. And this is a serious scripture, ladies and gentlemen, people that that make a merchandise of the temple of God or the people of God. That's a great sin, and they think that God is with them, and God is not with them. He's not with them totally. Now, he may be with them in some capacity, but not totally when you do that. And then also, there's organizations, especially one that me and my wife came out of, that they do sell their literature for free. However, once they get you in their clutches, they teach you that uh, uh, that you must at all times tie from your gross income, and you can't you can't uh, apply that to today, uh, in light of what happened in the 1930s in this country. We whether we're working for somebody or even have a business, we are required by the law, and we are commanded to, to keep the law, even though it's oppressive. We, we are commanded to keep the, uh, to, the tax laws to the best of our abilities. And we, if you're working for somebody, you're automatically taking Social Security, Medicaid, and then we are on a progressive tax system, which means that the more you make, the more they take out. The, the percentage goes up. God's tax rate is 10%. And that's it it's a flat tax of ten percent, but of course, the way the world does things uh is oppressive. but anyway, the point i 'm making is that, say, for instance, you make two thousand dollars. the average uh, oppressive tax rate is thirty three percent basically is taken out of our check so thirty three percent is taken out of that two thousand dollars that's around six hundred and something dollars six hundred and thirty dollars and how much do you have left? You have just what fourteen hundred bucks? that's a lot of money that the government takes out that you did not approve of so anyway that that's, that's what I'm stating here that uh and then you have ministers going around telling you that you must tie off your gross amount well if you tie off the gross amount of $1400 or that you have your net income that's $200 taken out <laughs> so you have only $1200 left most people can't live off of $1,200 a month. So that, that's just an example of what I'm telling you there. But, you know, if if you are debt-free and and, and you are in excellent shape financially, yeah, sure, tithe off your gross amount. if It's not going to hurt your family. But and the Scriptures tell you that you're worse than an infidel. That's in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. You're worse than an infidel if you don't take care of your family. So God does not want you to go into poverty tithing to him to the point of where you cannot take care of your family. And that's in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. You know, the Jews do teach that uh, you should tithe off your net income, even though they should go a little further and say, hey, you know, if you're struggling, what well, they do, they, they say if you're struggling, uh, only give what you can afford. So they do do that. They do teach that. And then 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, but if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith in his worst and is worse than an infidel the unbelievers, so none of us, I'm sure, want to be an infidel. So. Alright, so in Matthew chapter 26, verse 61, the, the temple of God is mentioned again. Matthew chapter 26. And said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, he was referring to himself as being a temple, which proves again that the temple of God, in certain contexts, can refer also to the people of God. Or it can refer to both. First Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Says, um, know you not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you so this definitely without any doubt shows you that the temple of God can also in certain certain contexts of scripture refer to the people of God verse 17 if any defile the temple of God or the people of God him shall God destroy for the temple of God is holy which you are all right so we the people the, the believers of God are considered the temple of God In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God wants to dwell with us spiritually, and we are a type of temple. That's what the temple represents as well. And Second Thessalonians chapter two verse four. Many people have Jesus this incorrectly and state that this is referring to the people of God here, but it can't when you look at the context here. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. two. Thessalonians chapter two verse four. Says, Who opposeth and exalt himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he is God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So, how can someone sit in a person? Obviously, this is referring to a physical structure. He's sitting in the temple of God, not the people of God. He's sitting in a physical structure. That's what he's doing, showing himself that he is God. All right, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. So again, this has to be talking about a physical structure where people are worshiping inside the temple. Okay, And what's being measured? The temple, the physical structure, the altar is being measured, and the people. And you have people, to eisegesis, and say, well, this is the temple of God. It's talking about this people of God being measured. No. It already tells you here, again, it says, rise and measure the temple of God. That's the first thing that's being measured. And the altar, the second thing, and then the third thing, and then that worship there, which are, of course, people. So it's three things that are being measured, not just one thing. So, you know, when foolish ministers, and I have to call them what it is, uh, when they don't, um, shouldn't call them fools, but they're, they're acting, they're not, Thinking properly—that's what I'm saying. Uh, they deceive themselves and other people. And in Revelation chapter 11, the same chapter here, uh, verse 19, in the temple of God, here the, the phrase "temple of God" is used in this particular chapter, and then both are talking about a physical structure. Structure, but this temple of God here is the one in heaven. There's a temple of God on the earth, and there's also a temple of God in heaven. The temple of God, the physical structure, on the earth. Alludes to or represents the temple of God in heaven. Verse 19, and the temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in this temple the ark of his testament or covenant, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So, again, that's to prove to you the significance of the temple of God. So, the temple of God is a physical structure, but also it could represent the people of God as well. Now, for further explanation of this in the remaining. How many minutes I have here? Uh, Forty minutes. Plenty of time here. Let's turn to page uh, eight eighteen and 819 in the Jewish New Testament commentary by David H. Stern, which I highly recommend you get. He states here on page 818, The Temple of God, in addition to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the heavenly original, after which is, it was modeled, Scripture mentions six literal temples. Six literal temples: Solomon's, the first temple, which is in 1 Kings 5 to 8; Zerubbabel's, the second temple, which is in Haggai 1 and 2 and Ezra 3 verses 4 to 13; Herald's called the rebuilt second temple, or by some the third temple. I wouldn't call it the third temple because uh, it was a part of the rebuilt second temple. That's in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, Matthew 24, verses 1 to 2, and John chapter 2, verse 19 to 20. A future temple in the days of Antimessiah. This is found in Daniel 9, verse 27, Daniel 11, verse 45, Daniel 12, verse 7, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, which we're going to go over here in a few minutes. Or, uh, yeah, a few minutes. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 to 4, which I just quoted. A future temple in the days of the Messiah, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 and Zechariah 6 verses 12 to 15. The temple in heaven, which is found in Revelation 7 verse 15, Revelation 11 verse 19, Revelation 14 verse 15 and 17, and Revelation 16 verse 17. The messianic community or the people of God, which I just quoted, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16 to 17. Second Corinthians six verse sixteen and Ephesians two verse twenty one. I didn't quote that scripture. Let's take a look at that. Ephesians two verse twenty one. In whom all the building fitly framed together grow into a holy temple in the Lord. So yes, that's another scripture that proves that the people of God can be also considered a temple of God, the physical body of a believer, as in first Corinthians six. Verse 19. Let's turn there. There's another scripture that proves that. It says, What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, in, which, is in you which you have of God, and you are not of your own? And then God and the Lamb, in the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, verse 22. Let's turn there. So this is 6. Literal temples, type of temples as described in the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, and uh, if I went a little too quick for you, for we those scriptures, please, uh, you can download this and forward it over to the party so that you can jot down those scriptures. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So God, the Father, and 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 the Lamb together is considered a temple as well. Now, the people, this um, scripture that he's uh, given his commentary on here, Revelation eleven verses one to two, says the people worshiping in the temple are Jews, and perhaps not all the Jews, but the believing Jewish remnant. Now, sure, many of those people will be Jews, but also. It's a possibility that some of those people or a significant part of those people are also Gentiles who have attached themselves to uh Israel at this particular period of time in the twenty first century would this occur. It says since the court outside the temple known as the court of the Gentiles, Ephesians two verse fourteen, is to be left out and not measured. In fact the whole role of the Goyim or the Gentiles here is to trample over the holy city. That's true. And this is found in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Rod and remnant is spared. At verse 9, the Gentiles prevent the burial of the two witnesses. Good point there. Uh, he says 42 months. This is apparently identical with the 1,260 days of verse 3 and 12, verse 6 in Revelation, compared Daniel 12, verse 11 to 12, where the 1,290 days and the 1,335 days are mentioned, and the season and two seasons and a half a season of Revelation 12, verse 14. So anyway... I just wanted to to read that to to prove to you all the different applications of the temple of God. And you can't say every every time, and and unfortunately me and my wife again were suckered into believing that every time you see the temple of God is talking about, spiritually, the people of God. No, you have to look at the context. Always look at the context. Context meaning what's above the scripture that you're trying to analyze and understand and what's below so that you can understand. Also, you need to understand, to have a general sweep, of Jewish history to really understand the Bible. Because if you don't have that, you're not going to understand the Bible. Because, I mean, you're not going to understand it in a mature way, in a well-learned way where you can teach others. Because in John chapter 4, Christ said one of the most significant statements of all time. He states here, You worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Catholics? No. Of the Protestants? No. Of the Muslims? No, of the Buddhists? no, of any other religion, no. He says of the Jews. Okay, so the Jews and Judaism is is the probably the best religion in the in the world. It is, but even that is not perfect. It does have errors. Uh, they tend to, they they have different uh, divisions as well. Not as many as Catholicism, but they have uh, you have the You have the ultra orthodox you have the Orthodox, you have the Reformists, you have the Conservatives, and you have the the very liberal. And uh, you have different sects among that, including Messianic Jews that believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, and you also have the Karite Jews that don't believe that the oral law, which is really the conflict that Jesus and his disciples had with the Pharisees back in the first century, the oral law are the interpretations of what the Jews felt the Bible was saying. And at that time it wasn't written down, but as in in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7, you can see the conflict that uh, it was called the tradition of the elders. That's what the oral law was at that time. And the tradition of the elders sometimes was in line with the the Word of God, and sometimes it wasn't. More often it was not in line with the Word of God, and, and that was the big conflict that Jesus had with the Pharisees that people confused into thinking that there was a conflict between the, the, the written law of God. No, there was a conflict with the oral law of the interpretations and misinterpretations of what the written law was saying. That was the big conflict, and that's what was nailed to the cross. The the oral law or the traditions of the elders or any other tradition was nailed to the cross. That's against the law of God or makes the, the written law of God a none effect. So, that that was the big conflict there. And what we need to understand in light of that is the temple of God must be built. The reason why, one of the major reasons why that it must be built is because the whole world will be drawn to God through the temple of God, the physical structure. Of course, they'll be drawn to God through God's people as well, but God also, in his plan for mankind, wants people and desires people to be drawn to a physical structure as well, where the people of God, who are temples as well, will be worshipping in a physical structure. That's just the way God wants things, and that's the way it will be in the future. And the construction of that temple can happen this year based on prophecy in the news. Uh, hopefully next week I'll finally have this information where I can actually show you what the Internet is saying about the possible sacrifice of a lamb for the first time in 2,000 years that may occur on the Jewish calendar of Passover, uh, the date of Passover, which is in the evening of um, or around 3 o'clock on uh, March 29th they may begin sacrificing on an altar so that would be major I mean the fact that they're even talking about it is is prophetic news in itself because it hasn't happened in 2,000 years but they're seriously talking about doing it this year if you just do a Google search for uh, March 29th Passover sacrifice in Jerusalem I'm sure something will come up to show you you can also go to prophecy in the news they may have that article uh, displayed on their website. If not, I would encourage you to get the magazine because it may be one of the most significant magazines you ever get from them that talks about this. It uh, has a picture of a lamb on the cover of it, the April magazine of Prophecy and the News. And you type in com to get that information. Now, it will only take about three months for the Jews to build a temple, the Temple Institute. Uh, you can type www.templeinstitute.org they have uh, constructed a gold menorah. They have already built a temple, uh, an altar rather. They already had Levitical priests ready to start sacrificing on the altar. Everything is prepared. I think they even have a red heifer now. So all that they need right now is something to happen, and something will happen to encourage the uh, Israeli government to allow sacrifices on the, on the altar in a rebuilt temple. That will happen. The Bible prophecies state that that will happen. Again, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 4 says it will happen in the days of the coming of the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 24, Well, let's get to what the abomination of desolation represents. I talked about this before, but I, I'm going to have to talk about it frequently here because it, it, it appears that it's going to happen soon, this abomination of desolation. Now, Yeshua stated that when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem getting ready to attack Jerusalem, that's in Luke chapter 21. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 21, starting at verse 20. It says, and when you shall see, and this is in the context of them asking him what is the the signs of the end. Okay, this is uh, a parallel passage of scripture with Mark chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 24. All three are talking about what is the sign of his coming at the end of the age, the end of uh, man trying to rule himself. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, you know that the desolation is near. Verse 20. And then then let them which are in Judea, which is the West Bank today, flee to the mountains, uh, the nearest mountains to the West Bank is Pella. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out and let them not that are in the countries entered there into. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So this is talking about a future event. All things that were written weren't fulfilled back in uh, 70 AD. So this was just a, a type. Uh, some, some of this happened in a type of situation uh, back in uh, AD uh, 69 and 70. But this will happen in its in totality and his completeness in the 21st century. Verse 23 But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon the people. Verse 24 And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive unto all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down into Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, which we know will be the end of the three and a half years and 1260 days. So, anyway. So when Yeshua stated that when you shall see armies surrounding Jerusalem, getting ready to attack Jerusalem, then the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet is near. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15 states, When you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Now, holy place is a part of the temple of God. is is uh, the place where the priests prepare for the sacrifices. And then you have the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant and, and um, the mercy seat is located. And, and the priest, the high priest, enters the Holy of Holies once a year during Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And he states in verse 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now, a parallel scripture to this. Is um, Mark chapter 13. Mark 13, verse 14. It says, But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, let him that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Alright, and Daniel chapter 12 alludes to this as well, because he told us to go to Daniel or This was spoken of by Daniel, so we need to go to Daniel to understand this. Daniel 12, verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that make a desolate set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, for us to understand this, we have to understand history as well. This event is a sign for the assemblies of, of, of God to flee to a place of safety and a sign that the Great Tribulation has started. So that 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 that's something that we need to look for. That's the sign, all right? Again, Yeshua stated the following about the abomination of desolation. Number one, it stands in the holy place in the temple. It stands where it ought not. Now, the abomination of desolation is simply an idol that will stand in a holy place in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Additionally, the anti-Messiah will sit in the temple of God and claim that he is God. That's in, I just quoted that scripture to you in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 4. This is an abomination to God, and he will not tolerate, for long anyway, this abomination, even though he'll allow it to continue on for three and a half years. Revelation 13, verse 14 to 15, describes the false prophet creating a statue or idol of the beast. Let's turn there. Revelation 13. Revelation 13. Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 14 states, uh, And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which is a literal idol, which had the wound by the sword and did live. Okay? And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed, so it looks like, miraculously, this statue is going to talk, and it's going to (laughs) cause people to really believe that uh, the beast uh, is God. So anyway, this statue would be placed in the holy place, according to Yeshua. Interestingly, in the days of Daniel, the king of Babylon created a statue of himself, and he commanded people to bow down and worship his image, or be killed. This is found in Daniel chapter 3. So Daniel in the book of Revelation is related. Also, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a type of anti he erected a statue, an image of Zeus, and a temple of God. This is found in First Maccabees. Let's turn there. Let's turn to First Maccabees. If you have Maccabees, if not, just listen. It's an apocryphal book. It's not considered uh, holy scripture, but nonetheless it is linked to Daniel because it does describe what the abomination of desolation is. And the Apocrypha should be some writings that you should read because it helps you understand the Bible better. So let me turn to this. If I can find it here. First Maccabees. First Maccabees uh chapter one verses ten to sixty four. says, And there came out of them a wicked root, Antiochus surname Ephiphanes, son of Antiochus the king, who had an, an hostage at Rome, and he reigned in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. This is in First Maccabees 1, verse 10 in the Apocrypha, verse 11. in those days went there out of Israel wicked men, who persuaded many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the heathen that are around about us, for since we departed from them, we have had much sorrow. Verse 12, so this device pleased them well. Verse 13, then certain of the people were so forward there that they went to the king who gave them license to do after the ordinance of the heathen, wherein they built a place of exercise at Jerusalem according to the custom of the heathen. So what you have to understand, this is talking about the time of the Grecian Empire in the days of Alexander the Great, and the Greeks came up with the Olympics, and this is what this is talking about here. Uh, the customs of the heathen, one of them was the Olympics, the Naked Olympics, basically, uh, where they had Olympics um, and, and exercised naked. Verse 15, of Maccabees, And made themselves uncircumcised, and forsook the holy covenant, and joined themselves to the heathen, and were so to do mischief. Verse 16, Now when the kingdom was established before Antiochus, he thought to reign over Egypt that he might have the dominion of two realms. Wherefore he entered into Egypt with a great multitude, with chariots and elephants and horsemen and a great navy, and made war against Ptolemy, king of Egypt. But Ptolemy was afraid of him and fled, and many were wounded to death. Thus they got the strong cities in the land of Egypt and took the spoils therein. And after that Antiochus had smitten Egypt, he returned again in the 143rd year and went up against Israel and Jerusalem with a great multitude and entered proudly into the sanctuary of the temple and took away the golden altar and the candlestick of light and all the vessels thereof and the table of the showbread, and the pouring vessels, and the vials, and the censers of gold, and the veil, and the crown, and the golden ornaments that were before the temple, all which he pulled off. So, this is what this antimessiah is going to do. He's going to do the same thing. Verse 23. He took also the silver, and the gold, and the precious vessels, and also took the hidden treasures which he found. Verse 24. And when he had taken all away and went into his own land, having made a great massacre, and spoken very proudly, verse 25. Therefore, there was a great mourning in Israel, and every place where they were so that the princes and elders mourned, the virgins and the young men were made feeble, and the beauty of women was changed. Every bridegroom took up lamentation, and and she that sat in the marriage chamber was in heaviness, and the land also was moved for the inhabitants thereof, and all the house of Jacob was covered with confusion. And after two years fully expired, the king sent his chief collector of tribute unto the cities of Judah, who came unto Jerusalem with great multitude and spake peaceable words unto them, but all was deceit, for when they had given him credence, he fell suddenly upon the city and smote it very sore and destroyed much people of Israel. And when he had taken the spoils of the city, he set it on fire and pulled down the houses and walls thereof on every side. But the women and children took they captive and possessed the cattle. They built a day, the city of David, with great and strong wall, with many mighty towers, and made a stronghold for them. And they put there in a sinful nation, wicked men, and fortified themselves there. And stored it also with armor and victuals. and when they had gathered together... The spoils of Jerusalem, they laid it up there, and so they became a a, a sore snare. For it was a place a lion weighed against the sanctuary and an evil adversary to Israel. Thus, they shed innocent blood on every side of the sanctuary and defiled it, insomuch that the inhabitants of Jerusalem fled because of them, whereas the city was made an inhabitation of strangers and became strange to to those that were born in her, and her own children left her. So let me get down to... So, you know, this is describing the uh, abomination of desolation. That's what this is, basically. That's what this was. And this is going to happen again. And in verse 44, it states uh, here, For the king has sent letters by messenger Jews in the cities of Judah, that they should follow the strange laws of the land, and forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices, and drink offerings in the temple, and that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days, and pollute the sanctuary and holy people set up altars and groves and chapels of idols and sacrifice swine's flesh and unclean beasts, that they should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all manner and cleanliness and profanation. To the end, they might forget the law and change all the ordinances. And whosoever would not do so, according to the commandment of the king, he said he should die. So this is what the abomination of desolation was then and what it will be again. Unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is a good patches of, of uh, writings here to analyze and get a, a feel for what's going to happen in the future. Okay. In the remaining 17 minutes I have here. The Jews are prophesied to rebuild a temple with an altar. as in Revelation 11, verse 1, and Malachi 3, verse 1. Let's turn there. Before I do that, let me try to locate something here okay, yes, in first Maccabees one verse fifty four I don't know why I didn't see that. In First Maccabees 1 verse 54, now the 15th day of the month of Caslu in the 145th year, they set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar and built idol altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side. So that's a definition of what the abomination of desolation is, a clear definition. In First Maccabees 1 verse 54, now the 50th, 15th day of the month, Caslu in the 145th year, they set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar and built Idol altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side, and burnt incense at the doors of their houses and the streets. When they had rent in pieces the books of the law which they found, they burnt them with fire. And whosoever was found with any the book of the testament or any committed to the law, the king's commandment was that they should be put to death. Thus did they by their authority unto the Israelites every month to as many as were found in the cities. Now the fifth and twentieth day of the month, they did sacrifice upon the altar, which was upon the altar of God. At which time, according to the commandment, they put to certain death certain women that had caused their children to be circumcised, and they hanged the infants about their necks and raffled their houses and slew them that had circumcised them. Howbeit, many in Israel were fully resolved and confirmed themselves not to eat any unclean thing, whereof they rather died that they might not be defiled with meats, and that they might not profane the holy agreements or the commandments. So then they died, and there was great wrath upon Israel. And this is going to happen again, ladies and gentlemen. I think First Maccabees 1 verse 54 to 64 is a more, is a better, accurate description of the abomination of desolation. Even though the other, you can read the entire chapter to get a feel and idea of what's going to happen in the future. Now it may not happen exactly like it, but it's going to be very similar. And remember that uh, prophecy or history, which is prophecy's future history repeats itself back in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9. Okay, so, basically, another thing that I want you to understand about the temple, I know that me and my wife are deceived. I forgot to go over this last week or one of the other programs, but I'm going to go over to Jim because it's very significant. And it has something to do with this no more delay scripture. Uh, Revelation chapter 11. It talks about um, actually before Revelation chapter 11, uh, 10. It talks about a little book, and, and we jump over to verse 6, and it says in, in, in verse 5, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swore by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things therein are, and, and the earth, and the things that therein are in the sea, and the things that which are therein, that there should be time no longer time no longer. I wonder if Stern says anything about this. Let's take a look here. Revelation chapter 10. No. But anyway, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seven angel, and we're living in those days now, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. And verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. It shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations, tongues and kings. And then starting in, in chapter 11, verse 1, And there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God. that's talking about a physical structure measured. And this is similar to, the phraseology is similar when you look at Ezekiel. Matter of fact, God also told Ezekiel to eat uh, words as well. So Ezekiel has something to do with the temple as well. Ezekiel chapter forty, Ezekiel chapter forty, starting in verse one. In the twenty-fifth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth day after the city was smitten, in the self day, the hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me thither in the visions of God brought me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed. And he stood in the gate, and the Son of Man said unto me, Son of man, behold, with thy eyes and hear with thine ears and set thy heart upon all that I shall show thee for to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou see to the house of Israel. So that's what I'm trying to do. and And it's talking about, when you read the rest of this, obviously it's talking about the temple. Okay, and when you also refer to the fact of John eating the little scroll, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. Starting in verse 8. Thou son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house, the entire house of Israel, including Jews. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me and it was written there without and there was written there lamentations and mourning and woe. And then and. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Ezekiel, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll and go and speak unto the house of Israel. Verse 2 So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee into the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. So the the role or, or the the little book symbolizes God's words, his his, his, um, his or his teachings, his prophecies, everything, and this is to be preached to all the nations, not just the Jews. So anyway, the what I want you to understand let's let's, let's go back to Daniel you should be starting to understand that this little book has something to do with the temple Daniel chapter 12 and the fact that the temple message should be preached to the whole world and it will be because it's very significant Daniel chapter 12 Daniel chapter 12 similar phraseology. Daniel 12, verse 4, it says, but thou, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and fill the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased, which has to be talking about primarily the Internet, although it's talking about other mediums of, uh, of knowledge, but the Internet has really, really opened the door toward or for knowledge should be increased in a mighty way in this 21st century. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, and one on this side of the bank of the river, and the other on the other side of the bank of the river. Verse 6, And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, and he held up his right hand and his left hand into heaven, and swore by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, time, and half a time, or three and a half years. And when he shall have accomplished the to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. Then said I, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till when? The time of the end or the 21st century. These words aren't closed up anymore and are open for anyone to understand. Verse 10, Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Verse eleven, and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away an abomination that make a desolate set up, that shall be one thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waiteth and come to the one thousand three hundred and thirty-fifth day, but go thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in the lot at the end of the day. So the three and a half years is linked to the temple. What the delay is, ladies and gentlemen, is the temple being built so that the sacrifices can be initiated. This delay has been in force since the days of John, since the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. That's the delay. The delay is is coming to an end in the days uh, of uh, when the the seven angels are about to shout, which are the days we're living in today. And it may end this year with the sacrifices being started again. But the temple needs to be built, and it's only going to take three months for them to do that. Once the temple is is built, there is no more delay, ladies and gentlemen. And there definitely won't be any any, uh, delay when the abomination of desolation occurs. That's what that's referring to. But when you start... The reason why the the, the the temple is so significant, ladies and gentlemen, is because the temple has everything to do with God coming back in the form of Jesus Christ as his representative. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, because God dwells in Yeshua Messiah, Matthew chapter 24, and he also would like to dwell in you as well, and can. Matthew 24, verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. Verse 2, And Jesus said unto thee, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, which is across from the temple, the disciples came to him privately saying, "Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming at the end of the world? So the temple is a great sign from God, in particular the abomination of it, which is of course a an idol of the anti messiah being put in the temple, as described in the prophecies of the Bible. that is the sign that when all these These uh, prophecies will be fulfilled. When that occurs, that will be the start of it. And then that will last for three and a half years. So what we need to be really looking for that is is really identified in the Bible is the start of the sacrifices in a rebuilt temple of God. Even even the fact that they're going to sacrifice this year if the Israeli government allows them to do it is significant because we know eventually they will rebuild that temple and they will start to sacrifice But when they start to the sacrifice in the rebuilt temple of God, that's when we know that this no more delay period is almost over. All right? And that's when we know that God will be coming back very soon in, 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 in the form of uh, Yeshua Messiah, through Yeshua Messiah. So that's the reason why we need to keep our focus on the temple. The temple should be the joy of the whole earth because of that reason. Because through his temple, his physical structure, temple, and his people, God wishes to dwell among us. Through the temple, the physical structure, and the spiritual, the people of God, he's going to teach all the nations of the world. How to live the right way. Through the temple, we will all be in God's presence. That's the significance of the temple, ladies and gentlemen. And remember that the temple is the joy, or should be the joy, of the whole earth. should be the joy of the whole earth. And we should focus on the temple, not our local congregations or church buildings. Uh, The temple is what we should be having our minds focused on. Because that is where God will rule in Jerusalem. That's where he will be at. And that's where that's where the headquarters of religious teachings will be located. And all teachings for that matter. Psalm forty eight verse one Great is the Lord God and greatly to be praised in the city of our God and the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the entire earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north and the city of the great king. Well, I wish you uh, success this week, and may God bless and keep you, and I'll speak to you next week. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant,